In this episode, I speak to three young guests, incredible people, and we're talking about experiences living abroad. I speak to my old high school friend, Jeanette. Um, we studied together in South Africa, and she's currently living in New York in the US, and in between spaces also there. I speak to a certain young person from South Africa who is in China. His name is Loazi. And I also speak to a Kenyan friend who currently lives in Australia. Um, his name is Kelvin. And we actually labor on different topics uh, ranging from visas, the T's and C's, from work, work hours, pace, and we talk also about finances, the cost of living, um, looking at transportation, accommodation, food, etc., and education. And then lastly, we explore just their experiences living in a foreign country and how it has been and also just checking what kind of advice they're giving sort of to many people who are planning to maybe relocate or to move to live overseas. Obviously, it is impossible to tackle everything that people might want to hear, but I'm very confident that this episode gives you uh, light as to what you need to know and how to prepare you know, uh, as you plan on your journey. And I hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, thank you very much for choosing the Visions and Tones podcast. Enjoy. So I'd love us to speak about the experiences living abroad. Actually, can we start from this? When you actually were planning to go overseas, how did you perceive the way the host country was really, uh, advertising themselves? Did, they, did, you, did you perceive them as a welcoming country, as a happy country? And what pushed you to actually choose that particular um, country? Maybe if we can start with you, Lozzy. Honestly, I didn't actually pick China. <laughs> like I came here eight years ago. I was here to study. The only reason I came here was because I was going to study medicine on a full ride scholarship. That was the only reason why I thought of China. Like I knew about China, like initially putting my thoughts into coming to China was like seven months before I flew into China. Prior to that, I had nothing. I had never thought of coming to China. My only idea of the Chinese people were through the karate movies and kung fu movies. I grew up watching <laughs> on SABC, which is like a national TV back home. Yeah. So apart from that, I knew nothing about China. So I had to like start like researching as much as I could about the country. But ultimately, like I knew that I would never get this opportunity ever again. So regardless of how the country was going to treat me, I was going to try and make it work because at the end of the day, I wanted to be a doctor and it was finally happening to me in a way that I had never imagined it would happen before. So, yeah. But uh, uh, eight years later, it's been amazing, honestly. I've been able to make a life for myself here and thrive. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I think coming into the country with an open mind really helps. Like I remember buying this small pocket uh, dictionary, uh, Mandarin dictionary book. I was trying to page through it, read through it in the airport and also in my flat. I was like, I'm, I'm really excited. I want to try and learn as much Chinese as I can. I want to integrate myself into the community with the people and the culture. So it's just about having an open mind, I guess, because even if a country is like probably hesitant towards accepting people, but if you are as an individual open to learning and integrating yourself into the culture, into the community, the people there, it'll be really great, I think. Uh, well, for me, um, what actually helped is that I had my 
my sister and my aunt here. So it didn't really, it wasn't really too bad for me. Um, the things that I, I guess I saw on TV in terms of like, you know, music videos, the one that got me was Jenny from the block because I was, I was going to the Bronx. So I knew that, okay, it's going to look a little something like that. But then when I went to the Bronx, it definitely wasn't what I thought it was. I saw on TV. So I guess, um, looking at, um, American shows, yeah. made me think that okay it's something of that sort but then when you actually come into the country you realize that it's not really what you really see on tv it's actually so different people here are just like hustling especially if it's africans if you if you in um in a place where it's just africans so i'm in a place where um it was mainly just africans people from ghana or people from it's South Africans. I never actually met a whole lot of them. It's only when I went to like um, a South African restaurant that I'll see, okay, that there's actually South Africans here. But other than that, I actually had to, when I saw what I saw on TV and actually see it live, I was like, okay, this is, they're selling us a whole lot of, I don't know. Mm. I mean, yeah. the funny thing is the fact that as you spoke about what, what you saw on the television, mm-hmm. the funny thing is that part of this first world is actually presented as beautiful places and the third world is yeah. some kind of weird mm-hmm. spaces, which is why even the contemporary, knowing that you, um, you know, the, the, I think the mainstream media has actually advanced much more, but you still come across Australians who will ask you whether you, there's cars in Africa would ask you whether, you know, uh, <laughs> You, you, you really live with an elephant, which at some point my, my, my banter response to one lady at the airport, I was like, yeah, actually my roommate is an elephant and she didn't actually look very shocked. I was like, are you really convinced by what I just said now? You know, but I guess the point is just to hammer on, you know, the real world media and whatnot. And I'm hoping that through this conversation, people actually know it's a beautiful picture that you paint for us, Jeanette, that, you know, it isn't as rosy as it is actually presented on, on television, you know? Another thing is that, like, also, it, it doesn't just tell us about how how Western Western countries or like uh, first world countries are viewed. It also just tells us how the people in general how ignorant they are as as a community. Because, like, even if you come from a first world country, if you have access to the internet, if you have if you really want to know more, you can find out that Africa is not a country. It has like more than 50 countries. And like, yeah. we all don't live with running animals in the streets. Like yeah. it just shows, it just goes to show that some people are just ignorant and they're comfortable being ignorant in general. True. Very true. Yeah, go. Uh, yeah. My, my coming to, to Australia was a, was a little bit different than everyone else's. Um, Kenya is known for having a high number of uh, educated young people who are having a really hard time finding work, starting a career. So, um, you know, my when it came time for me to, to seek higher learning, um, I'm the youngest in the family. Everyone else has graduated. Everyone else has a career. So, uh, you know, my mom at the time, she was like, she was like, now what? What do I do with you? Yeah, my my youngest. <laughs> uh, should I just put you through any of these Kenyan universities and pray that 
you don't reach 30 years old and you're still living in my house because you don't haven't got a job yet. <laughs> what do I do with yeah. you? And yeah. at that time, um, two of my cousins were planning to come to Australia as well. There was a large number of Kenyans at the time in uh, Western Australia, especially in Perth. And so mm-hmm. throughout the whole process of my two cousins coming here and communicating with them sort of kind of drew me a picture of, of, of what life was here. And the main idea was, um, you know, it wasn't ex- as costly as we had initially thought. You know, we, we, we used to think that it was only children of politicians and wealthy people who got the opportunity mm-hmm. to come and study abroad. Um, but actually, you know, my mom was like, ah, it's like, you remember this woman? Uh, I used to work with her in the office and her kid is abroad. And that's like, she's like, oh, like, I, I didn't know I could afford this, but I actually can. Um, but uh, as with everyone, the plan is, you know, go there, study there, get opportunities, um, send tons of money back home. And maybe one day you can go back and, and leave back home or whatever. Mm. Um, and that's that's how I ended up here. Uh, a few, I said during, it took, it took about two and a half or three years um, for me to actually begin the process to when I actually left the country. So all this time I was brushing up on things. I was watching a lot of border force. I don't know why I was watching a lot of border force and how they screen people at the airports and stuff like oh. that. Um, a lot of Steve Irwin and, you know, a lot of fear about, you know, all the dangerous animals and, and animals that can kill you. That's, you know, one of the things that Australia is famous for. Um, yeah. I like the fact that actually the three of you guys touch base on the importance of doing research um, or, you know, getting closer to something that will make you be more aware of the space you should go into. For instance, Lazio was talking about a bit of research and having to buy, you know, a dictionary there so he can learn a bit of Mandarin. And Jay, you sort of relied on, you know, mainstream media, even if it actually sold you dreams and that was not really what it was, you know, and 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 Calvin on the other side is speaking about, you know, the border issues, because I think the, the border it's actually a big thing um, here in Australia. Like there's too many things that you cannot actually enter this, you know, country with animal skins, fruits, whatever. You cannot just carry anything from your own country. And um, I would love us to speak more now about the visa. Actually, which visa did you come on and touch base now towards what I said in terms of work? What exactly does your visa allow you to do in the space which you're in? And I know that for some people like Wazi, the roles may have switched a little bit. You came as a student, but now you're working as an English teacher. So if you can also give a bit of a... just in a short or in a nutshell, just to touch base your visa process, how long it took and what visa you're on and how much roughly does it cost and what, what can you do in terms of work, how many hours? I know that's a mouthful kind of a question, but if you can touch base, whatever you can remember. Uh, Gina. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. So with me, um, my visa, honestly, okay. So when I came here, I came because I was my sister was getting married so I came visiting and they gave me 10, 10 years, which was surprising because I was just coming to visit. My plan was not to stay here because I actually love South Africa too much. Actually, I really love South Africa. So it wasn't my plan to stay here. Was that the times of Trump or the... the, the um, uh... It was times of Obama. Obama. Oh, all right. Yeah. I, I couldn't have imagined Trump giving me 10 years. <laughs> I know, I know. I was shocked. I was really shocked. 
just to answer your questions, like um, when I came, like the visa applications took like how much was it? It was like around 2,500. So it was 2,300, but because I asked somebody to do it for me, um, I paid them like two or 300. So it ended up being like 2,600 or something like that for them to help me apply for the visa. Um, so that's what happened. And then um, in terms of like, work um because i came visiting i didn't really work um it's only like in a later stage when i got married because it actually takes like a long process um for you to find work for my sister only when she got married was was it possible for her to actually work uh yeah go mm-hmm. yeah so uh in kenya if you have decided that you would like to be an international student and you would like to come to Australia, all these universities that welcome international students, um, they liaise with business people in Kenya and sort of like there's um, agencies that are set up to assist with the application process. It's a business because, um, you know, they like us paying exorbitant amounts of tuition fees. Anyway, um, so on the Australian website, a student visa is now $630. Um, That's the application fee that translates to around 48,000 Kenyan shillings. When I was coming, I paid 50,000 Kenyan shillings. So that was around like $648 back in 2018. Oh yeah. So like uh, for me, the visa process was quite straightforward you just need to have like obviously a degree like you need to not have a criminal record and you also need to be medically fit and the visa cost was about i think 650 rands that's about 43 dollars 43 us dollars what yeah it's very cheap it took about a week i think a week yeah a week for me to get it my work visa but the the most strenuous thing is like getting your documents ready. Like you have to get your yeah. degree notarized. There's like multiple stages that you have to go through before you can actually take it to the Chinese embassy. And then they have to like stamp a seal on it. Then you can actually apply for the, for the visa. So the administrative work is quite a lot. Like it could take you like anything from like three months to like, to like a year, depending on how, on how things work on your end. Mm. But yeah, the visa, actually the visa, applying for the visa is actually quite fast. I got mine in like a week and then I was out, the, I flew out uh, two days later. So it's straightforward. And then in terms of the hours, it obviously depends on the company that you work in. Mostly if you're a teacher, you work anything between 25 to 40 hours a week. It could be more. So, and if it's more, then you get like compensated for overtime and stuff, yeah. But yeah, most of the work here is yeah. quite chill. Like teaching is amazing. That's why I left. Yeah. yeah. So you mean to say there's no something like you you're now breaking the the law if you're working, let's say, more than forty hours if forty hours per week is the requirement? Because I think that's that's subclass five hundred. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I actually forgot to talk about the job stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, as 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 Razi said. Um, the visa is most during the entire process most the visa is most likely going to be the quickest part because there is a big list that you need there's an entire list that you need to do first you have to do your English test you have to have 
you know, gotten a response from the uni that you want to go to before you can then start applying for your visa. You must mm-hmm. take to the embassy people that, okay, the school has accepted me, but like, can you give me a visa? Um, <clears throat> so coming here and looking for work, um, communication with the guys that were already here and communication with my cousins on the other part of the country, they, uh, they painted a picture of, you know, if you're quick on your feet and if you're hungry, there is work to be found. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the line, you know, one of the visa conditions was still ringing in my head because one of the visa conditions if you're a student is, yeah, no more than 40 hours a fortnight. So when I came, um, when I came to, to Sydney, I think I got my first job within a week. I just got online. I was looking for a job. I got a cleaning job. Um, first job, they, they, they were very keen on following my, um, my user requirements. And I thought that that was going to be enough for me to live on. But uh, the truth dawned very quickly that if you really want to survive in this country, there is no way, there is no way you're going to survive in the hours that they're dictating. Razi, you were were still going to continue there. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was speaking about the, um, the overtime. So, like, as, as foreigners and experts in China, we tend to do overtime, but for locals, there isn't, overtime doesn't exist in general in China for locals. So, most of the time, you tend to work anything between 25 to 40 hours, and you are legally supposed to work in one company. So, you can't just, like, maybe work in company A and then change go to a company C over the weekends. If you, if you come on a work visa here, you're only allowed to work for that company only. Even if it's not sufficient for you to like be able to, su- to survive with everything, that's the only company you can work for. I mean, I, thought, I mean, in New York City, it's pretty different. Um, like you could work two or three jobs, um, mm. you know, work 40 hours here in one job and then, uh, you know, 15 hours here and another job. You can do Uber. <laughs> That's another job. We still count that as another mm-hmm. job. Like there's so many things that you could do because there's so many opportunities in terms of work. Um, for example, if, um, cause I, when I came, I started out like just doing, um, home health aids. So that's, mm-hmm. that's like, you'd go to homes and you just take care of the elderly or you'll take off, take care of people that are sick. Um, cause that's mostly not, not to say that Americans aren't healthy, <laughs> but that there's a whole lot of people that are sick <laughs> in terms of old age, um, high blood pressure. They, um, dementia is like one of the, I think very high. So you'd work for them. You would help them out. Um, so that's that's how it actually started until you decide that, okay, you know what, let me go to school and pursue nursing or because you started in that field, you might as well do nursing or you might as well do something in the in the health field because at least you have like background because sometimes mm. you'd work in nursing homes. So you know, like the gist of what's happening, you know, so it's much better to just stick in the health field. So that's what I've, I've decided to do, like just stick in the health field since I know 
like I started out, even though it wasn't a good start, how I started in terms of working for somebody, at least, you know, I think um, it also helps that if you're from a different country, you actually know um won't do like you know how to to take care of people you know how to like it's easier for foreigners to take care of um people in terms of like white people or the elderly because you come from a country that is it's not i guess you take care of people sitting right next to you you know you look out for them actually let me say it like that so I want to pull you in it. Uh, sorry, I want to pull you a little bit on that one. Um, mm-hmm. Is it really? And I'm not making any sort of hypothesis or any or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But I'd love to eat this here from you and and especially Kelvin because Kelvin is much more familiar with that kind of a space. Is it really the matter that we we love taking care of people, or that becomes sort of the job market that Black people actually um, get to, and not just Black people but also internationals get to actually uh, be more accommodated in that space because the domestic people do not want to do that kind of a job. Um, is it really a matter of we care? I know that generally we care, but I want to sort of strike a balance between whether if I come as a sociologist, do I really have the space to can apply to go work as a sociologist or the job market doesn't open up for me, then I end up you know, negotiating space by doing a certain kind of a job because I think that's the reality of so many people um, around. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's that way because there are people that come here um, some are teachers, some decide that, okay, I don't like this health field. I want to do, um, IT. IT is also pretty big here. Like if you're an IT guy, you, you making a lot of money. So I just think it's, it just depends on, on the type of person that you are. And also if you come into those spaces and realize that it's not for you, you, you are able to shift and go to a different, go to school and further your studies and say, okay, I don't, I'm not really like liking taking care of people. And then you decide to go to school and become uh, an IT guy or a teacher or, you know, so there's different fields that you can go to. It just depends on if you are, open to doing those things if you're open to start from the start in terms of school because school um like my sister was like my sister was um optometrist when she was in south africa but when she came here she later realized that her optometry is not gonna go far she still has to go to school and it's like another five years just for her to be a doctor in this place because that's like they know they the level of education here is pretty intense in terms of you really need to go to school to further even if you are a doctor in america i mean in south africa you still need to come here do some studies go to school and then you know do your residency and then after that you need to go to i don't don't know what comes first medical school and then after that you need to do your residency and then you know so there's it's it just depends on what you want to do and um yeah and take it from there so if you start as a home health aide because that's the easiest way to get in and then you later realize that this is not for me there are ways that you could get out but it all starts with education 
Um, I'd love to hear. Uh, um, I'll come to you, Lois. I'd love to hear Diego because I've mentioned more about him also. That's that's really good. That's really good, Jeanette. I think you have a very nice, very good attitude. Um, <laughs> or maybe the American uh, scenario is more positive. I think, um, and I guess maybe Tony can can reiterate. Um, Australia makes it very clear that they put Australians first. Um, and it's quite obvious they they don't they don't they're not shy about saying it. So um, when it comes to the job market, uh, as a foreigner and as an immigrant, um, it will be easier for you to get a job if you pick a field that is lacking, a field um, <clears throat> that is in high demand. So when I my, my first job in Sydney, I lived in Sydney for uh, 10 months and then I moved to Newcastle. There's a bit of a regional area, two hours north of Sydney. And in Sydney, I couldn't get any job because I didn't have any qualifications. One thing that Australia does, there is no Kenyan qualification that is recognized in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you If you have a degree, like if you have a degree, you'll still have to do like a year of, you know, just some study sort of to prove that you actually know, you know, stuff about your degree, stuff like that. You can't just come straight from Kenya with a degree, with your Kenyan degree and expect to, to get the same level um, of work and stuff like that. So my first job was a cleaning job, of course, no education needed, no skills needed, you know, it's just it's cleaning. <laughs> we clean every day. We clean our houses. We clean everything. So you can just get paid to clean houses. Um, I realized that that wasn't giving me enough money. So my, I had friends working in construction. Uh, never in my years on this earth did I ever picture myself having to do construction work. But apparently in Australia, uh, unlike Kenya, where you know people shy away from manual labor jobs because they don't pay well and they're dangerous over here it's the other way around they're really focused on safety um they actually pay well because it's a hard job mm-hmm. so i did that for a little bit uh and then now i'm working in healthcare so in newcastle newcastle is a big healthcare city there's a lot of nursing homes for old people uh there's a lot of um, group homes for for the disabled um, and they need a lot of support workers and carers. Uh, there's a big demand in that field. And you will find that a lot of, I can, I think I can confidently say 95% of uh, students, not just African students, but international students are working in healthcare. Um, and because it's so easy for us to get work, um, you know, you don't need that much experience. And it, it actually pairs well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been, you know, I've been on the job and I'm, I've, I can remember one guy that I worked with, he was from India and he has a master's degree in accounting, but you can't oh. get a job anywhere. You know, we're working in a nursing home. There's a lot of, there are a lot of educated professionals from other countries who have come and, you know, they've been so excited about, you know, finally working in their field and, you know, two or three years down the line, you know, you need the money, you're desperate. You, you just, you like, the environment sort of makes you give up on 
whatever you wanted to do. Um, yeah, that's not for everyone. That's not, as I say, that's not for everyone, but it is a very common trend. I mean, and there's something I like from what you said, uh, Kelvin and, and Jeanette. Jeanette spoke more about healthcare. <clears throat> Sorry, you're touching also on healthcare, Kelvin, and you're talking about construction mm. work. And, and you know, it made me think on back home, the whole, should I say, that's a stereotype or what? Whatever it is, you'll, you'll, you'll decide whatever you want to call it. The fact that if someone goes into like nursing and whatnot, that's sort of considered a low kind of a job where, you know, you find that you come to the first or that is actually a very good job. You know, it pays you um, very well, well, a decent, a decent, you know, salary. Obviously, it's not across each and every country, but in some countries, you know, there's there's that level of also looking after, you know, uh, the people who who look after aged care people or the disabled or whatnot. Whereas back home, there could be certain stereotypes about certain jobs. You know, you you find that yeah, yeah, yeah even yeah, professional people can do Uber. You know, in the U.S., you find even some professional people do Uber, but you find that the the drive that pushes one to do Uber is different. Back home, it might be real hunger and I need something to sustain my family, whereas in other spaces, it might be, I just want to interact with people or it might be, I just need a second source of income or whatever the case. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, I love that about, especially about Australia, the fact that some of the jobs, if you are back home, Gene, it really and largely some of the jobs, particularly looking after the disabled, you think, but but this is me being a maid. But in Australia, it's given a fancy name, you know? Yeah. It's given a fancy title when you go through some kind of training and whatnot, and, but you're thinking, but I'm still a maid <laughs> at the end of the day, you know? Um, but here they'll look after you and then back home it's something else. And also the whole issue of vocational education and whatnot. Uh, we on COVID, I look very scruffy. My my barber actually studies to be a barber. Well, it's back home. You just learn, you know, by, yeah. you know, clipping your siblings and then you make few errors and then tomorrow yeah. by time you better, you know. And and I'm thinking about this. Now I'm coming to you, Loazi, if you can respond to the in earlier topics which, which we asked, but also to touch a little bit on how is the vocational education in China? Because I know that China apparently is doing very great in terms of vocational education. There's no sort of that kind of undermining and underfunding of vocational education like you'd see in places like South Africa. I mean, we've seen protests like FISMAS 4 talking about not only universities are underfunded, but also places like TVET, where most of the Black kids who are not selected or recruited by universities end up to go study there. And But also the fact that if you do woodwork, you're, actually, you're undermined for doing woodwork, but whilst woodwork in another country, it's a decent job. Exactly. You know, Tony, like I've actually never seen a college here in China. I've, I've seen universities. Most people just go to universities. I feel like they also have sort of like a similar problem in South Africa where they undermine a lot of colleges and like a vocational training schools. Because almost every student wants to either go to the America or they want to go to England to study further. They want to learn English. They're taking extra classes so that they can go to these prestigious universities abroad. Like, it's also still a problem, like a, a very big problem. Chinese locals don't want to go into vocational training. But the country is, is growing like in a, in a fast-paced rate. And they need people that are going to build uh, buildings, roads, and infrastructure but somehow young people growing up, if you ask them, they want to go to America or they want to go to England to study further. 
they want to learn more English or they want to be like, they want to do other things that they don't want to do vocational work though. It's, it's, almost, it's almost similar to how South Africa is. Like it's mostly looked down upon, which is quite sad does, because... Does vocational work pay well in China? Uh, I have no idea. Like, I'm yeah. so sorry. I wouldn't be able to comment on that because yeah. most of the people that I yeah. know are either working professionals or teachers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't have like access to people that work in the vocation. Like field. really, if, if even if you were to hire me, COVID comes in and say, go and fumigate, Tony, I'll give you uh, $50 per hour. I would have jumped into that job. Wait, sociology, I'm coming to fumigate and get $50 per hour. I need the money than really chasing the status. Yeah. I want us to talk about uh, finances quickly so we can speed up the process. What is more expensive? What is least, least expensive? You're looking at your accommodation. You're looking at your transportation, food, clothing, entertainment. Razi. Oh my God, I'm trying to think. I have the most expensive. I have no idea. It's because most of our jobs are, come with benefits. So either your apartment is fully paid for or you eat at your uh, at your place of work, and clothes is not really expensive. I'm not really a clothing person. I think though, if you like, you live in a in a bigger city, metropolis like Shanghai, Beijing, like rent would be your most expensive bills. But then, if you obviously have like a job, like a teaching job, like most of your rent is subsidized by your company. Like my company pays like 55 percent of my rent. I only have to pay 45. And I live in a very small city. So honestly, yeah, I think it'd be rent. Be rent be the most expensive. And the cheapest uh food. Food or transportation, it's the most cheap. If you're eating local food, it's ridiculously cheap. And transportation, it's so cheap. If you take buses or if you take metros, it's really affordable. Um in New York City, it's pretty expensive in terms of accommodation. Hence, um, my husband and I decided to move to Atlanta, but accommodation in Atlanta is way different than in New York city. So for example, you would get like the tiniest bedroom, like one bedroom costing for like 2.5. So $2,500. That's like Mm. what? 20 grand. And that's a month, 20 something grand a month. And that's just for one bedroom. You know what I mean? But then here, when you come to Atlanta, you get um, two bedroom for $900. And it's like normal space. Like you can survive. You can, you know, you can start a family. So it just depends on the area that you're in. Bronx, New York City, Manhattan is too expensive. You you need to really work hard um, to 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 um for uh, I, I guess for some people it helps that it, it's good that you have good credit so that you can get a house in terms of because i think apartments is is i would say it's wasting time it's much better for you to get a house and then you know that okay i'm paying mortgage and it's gonna be my house unlike paying somebody else two point two thousand five hundred dollars for them to be richer and you are actually working just so that you can pay rent. So um, accommodation is pretty expensive. Food in New York City was pretty, was, is pretty reasonable because, okay, so 
if you're in a community of Ghanaians, you know your local food, you eat that type of food, and it's pretty, pretty reasonable. Um, you like Spanish food. You, you actually get to taste different types of food because now you're staying with Spanish people, you're staying with people from Puerto Rico, you're staying with people from um, Jamaicans. I love Jamaican food. You stay with different types of people, Haitian people. So you get to taste all that food and they're reasonably priced. It just depends on where you go to. If you're going to Manhattan, of course you're going to pay a Manhattan prices. If you really mm-hmm. want to just say, okay, I want to treat myself, you're going to, your prices are going to be a little higher, but accommodation and food clothes, it also depends on where you are going. If you are going to go to the Bronx, just, you know, like how in Joburg, but the small streets, small streets, oh, you yeah. can buy reasonable price, like clothing. If it, Okay. I guess for women, it's different. You can go to small streets and pick if you like really stylish and you know how to pick your clothes, you can buy clothes. But if you're a guy, guys, I think it's more different because your clothing is, yeah. you can't just wear from small Expensive. <laughs> yeah, you can't just go to small streets. So for us women, it's different. We could just go to small, like a place in, in the Bronx that um, sells those type of clothing, but it's actually reasonably priced, but you'll still look good. I thought you'd mentioned healthcare is one of the most expensive things. Oh, um, medical bills. Okay, so for medical bills, it's different because, okay, so um, with me, I started off as getting free medical um, insurance. So I didn't really pay and it also depends on like the company that you work for. So for healthcare people, like people that are nurses, um, doctors and all that stuff, I guess your company, the hospital helps you with, with medical insurance. And for some people like people that, okay, so I'm with people that are actually nurses and doctors, people in IT. So I'm around those people that do that. So I know that in IT, they, they get like, good insurances, you know? So it just depends on the company that you work for. If you're working in the hospital, doctor, if you're in IT, I'm not sure about other, like other medical, but if you're a teacher, you also get good insurance. Um, But for people that are undocumented, you can get um, free insurance and you, you can, you can, you actually get to go to hospital for free. You don't, I mean, they choose your doctors for you and you actually have to do research in terms of like, okay, see the reviews of the doctor. If he's a good doctor, I can go to that person. But it also depends on um, just your job. Yeah. Thanks, Cover. Um, the most expensive thing in Australia for me is uh, school. School mm. is 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 yo like you know they might as well just hook up a, a an IV and just drain your blood. It's um it's a it's a lot more expensive than Australian citizens pay, and uh, this is something I came to realize when we went into lockdown last year. And I read an article in the newspaper that. Um, you know, a certain Sydney university was, um, you know, almost getting bankrupt because they didn't take in any international students that year. 
And I actually came to realize that, yeah, like it is these really high international student fees that are actually running the universities. That's why they're so happy to take so many international students every year because we pay a lot of money and they want us to pay it upfront. We don't get any assistance. We don't get any, you know, reprieve. They want you to do full time by force and they want you to pay all the uni fees upfront. Um, health cover. So Australia mandates that you must have the overseas student health cover for the, for the entire period of your visa paid upfront before you come. So I got a five-year visa, so I had to pay for a five-year period health cover, which came to, um, right now, is with Allianz. Uh, Allianz right now are charging $2,500 for that insurance cover for the same five-year period for a student. At the time of my application, I paid 3800 so another review for my agent, because um, <laughs> I think because <laughs> I think they upsold me. Um, but yeah, just generally, you know, if I'm trying to buy clothes, there's secondhand, you know, shops you can get secondhand clothes that are quite good. Um, you know, Facebook Marketplace. I have a few pairs of really nice shoes that I got from Marketplace. It just depends on the person. If you're a person who's into fancy things and you like to look nice and you want to be trendy, wearing all the expensive stuff, that's what you'll go for. But if if you're okay with, you know, if you want to treat yourself once in a while, just, it's not really that expensive. You can find a way to put it in your budget, depending on what you're earning, of course. Um, but like for me, for example, with my health cover already paid for, I can, you know, I can go to a medical center without any fear. Um, I think I've only had to pay, I think once there was some, there was some special imaging thing that I had done to get done that wasn't in my policy, but that's all. Everything else, um, has been covered. Uh, yeah, so you know, stuff is expensive and and rent as well. Sorry, uni and rent. Rent is expensive. Um, the rent that I pay right now per week is enough to pay an entry level job. You know, in Kenya, sort of, you can pay someone that per month. If we can move along um, and maybe try to make this next segment as quick as possible, I'd love to hear from you guys. The experiences in the community, the spaces that you walk in, um, how people treating you. There's too many things being spoken about different countries. For instance, you go to South Africa, you say, I'm in Australia. And the first question people are going to ask you, apart from the spiders and the snakes, they'll ask you, how's the racism? Because we, you know, we learned that there's high racism in, 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 in Australia which is actually the same as also with uh, the U.S., you know. Um, so aren't you afraid of uh, just walking the street and then certain police officers just come and just shoot at you and um, uh, for no reason, you know. And then Lazi, you go to China, you hear that, oh, there's certain spaces if they see a black person, it's like they want to touch this, they want to touch your hair, they want to just take pictures. It's like they've seen something in the zoo. 
How, how's your experiences um, there and how do you deal with the complexities of people's curiosities? Lozing. I think with any other nation, like in a, any other nation in the world that exists under white supremacy, there will always be racism when, if there's always white, uh, black people in that space. So, and, and the Chinese people, they're not spared in any of that. So there is a lot of racism here, like overt racism and subtle racism. Sometimes, as you mentioned, they'll want to touch your hair or they'll just start taking photos of you without your consent. And even in even within the hiring practices, like South African Black people are one of the least sought out uh, people for offers. Like if you're applying for a new job, they always prefer white American male or females and then uh, British people and then Australians. And then lastly, it would be like uh, people from Ireland and then South Africa. So we always are the last people to get jobs. Just differs a lot of racism from the Chinese people and also just like from the other experts living in the country too. As a South African, obviously I'm used to racism. Like I grew up with it. It's not something new. It's just finding a way where you can like build a nice life for yourself, finding a good company where they accept you and they know that you're capable of doing your work regardless of your skin tone. And just like having a, a nice community of friends and people that see you beyond your race. But racism is like, uh, it's everywhere. Like there'll always be racism. It's everywhere in the country. But there's also just like so much beauty in like uh, blackness and how, how we can like teach the little kids, the Chinese kids about our cultures, where we come from, that there's so much for us. We in a better position to like impact these kids so that like 20 years from now, they, when they come across a black person or an African person, they don't immediately want to take a photo of them or they don't want immediately want to like start cursing them or say anything bad to us. And they'd want to approach them and communicate to them in English. So uh, we are really changing China. Little by little, it's changing. And I'm so happy that I'm in that position that I can actually do that, especially in my line of work. Like I always make sure that when I, when I teach in my classes, I don't teach English anymore now. I teach science. But every opportunity I get, I always make sure that like uh, incorporates black people of different shades, of different shapes. I also like incorporate like Chinese people too, so they, they, they can see themselves in like in a more of like a multicultural uh, perspective. I always make sure that I'm trying to expose them to the like, uh, different cultures and norms, so that they become aware. They grow up being individuals that are that are aware and have like a, a better social interactions with uh, people from different countries. Right. Jay. Um, okay. So um, this side, it's pretty different, I think. <laughs> um, so in New York City, when I was in the Bronx, because of the many like diversity of people that are there, I didn't really experience racism. I, honestly, I haven't really experienced it. I've only seen it on TV. Um, in terms of you would see that, okay, black people are being, black guys are being shot and all that stuff. I only see that on the TV. Um, I'm in Atlanta. I haven't really experienced um, racism too because there's a whole lot of black people here. Um, but in terms of, you know, getting, I, I am kind of 
it's scared of being stopped by cops because of just the stigma around, you know, black people, black lives matter and all that stuff. So I just, for me, I just haven't experienced it. And I, I don't know anybody that has experienced it that is around my circles. Um, yeah, so I've experienced a lot. <laughs> uh, lot. Because, of the, because of the demographics of the people that I work with in healthcare, um, you know, working with the much, much, much older generation, you know, these are people that are racist, homophobic, uh, misogynistic, and all those. Um, so my, what I've learned, my coping mechanism um, sort of is, and how, how I react is usually dependent on, you know, whoever has you know said it whether it was remarks or something and what i mean by that is you know sometimes you might be working with someone who's not of sound mind and and they say something and your reaction cannot be the same if maybe it was a random person on the street who is completely of sound mind because your reaction can then be turned against you into like you're breaking work policy you know maybe you're not supposed to do this and this and this so I, I find that for, for work purposes and for me to be able to retain my job and retain the ability to make, to get another job somewhere down the line, um, it's good to it's good to find as an African person it's good to find yourself in a workplace that is um, you know has a zero tolerance policy on racism and discrimination so that if if you encounter such instances at the workplace you can act on it knowing that your employer has your back because I've been in a, situ in a situation where my employer didn't have my back and I ended up sort of feeling like, like, you know, what exactly like is this? Are you trying to say that this is something that can happen in the workplace and stuff like that? So I think um, you just have to develop a coping mechanism in Australia, to be honest. It is going to happen um and the bad thing is your reaction might be sort of judged more than the race than you know the discrimination itself um, exactly yeah 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 this definitely That's, what happens a lot but, to us yeah, yeah but another thing as well is to, to keep an open mind and to learn how to distinguish between ignorance and racism um, if you go out every day looking for it you will find it you will find it in the smallest things um, so yeah, just learning how to differentiate between just ignorance, you know, of people who don't know anything and actual racism, because it will save you a lot of trauma. It will save you a lot of headache. And you mean overt, you mean overt and subtle racism? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Because it's always still racism. Even if, even if, even if someone is ignorant or not, it's still, it's still, it's, it just I, uh, depends on what I, it is. Overt or subtle. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just my coping mechanism, but I sometimes sometimes I just say to myself, I'm just like you know, this is just another white person who's never opened a Google tab in their life, and I don't really need to answer them, or I can just mess with them, and like whatever Tony said earlier in the beginning, I could just be like, yeah, you know what, yeah, like I run with the lions every morning, you know, stuff like that, um, where it, and you know when it's in your face and you know someone is calling you names and stuff like that you can react in a different way um for me personally i experience it more in the workplace than out on the streets because when i'm out on the streets i'm surrounded by uh i surround myself with people who are 
most of the time, <laughs> not racist. <laughs> so I'll experience it more in the workplace. What is that you say you love about the space that you are in at this particular moment? What do you love about the people, uh, despite the racism or whatnot, especially for Lazi and, and, and Kelvin? What would you say you love about the space that you're in right now, like the culture of the people, like the behavior of the people? For instance, one of the things for me that I've observed about the Australians that I actually love the most is, to, is, is how much attention they give to you if you ask for direction to go somewhere. If a person is easy, they literally stop. Well, those I, I've came, I came across, they literally stop what they're doing and they'll even come outside to actually, you know, tell you this is where you go, that's how you get there and whatnot. And it doesn't sound like, you know, that kind of condescending kind of a way where some people say, you should have just said it while you're standing there then you know, coming outside and to even point the corner. That's the corner where you have to turn or whatever the case. So I really appreciate that about the Australian culture, the fact that people really make the time to stop and then come and help you. Because I come from a, well, the job of culture also is that sometimes people can even say, I don't know, you're coming looking for Loise and Loise is my neighbor. They can just say, I don't know. I mean, it, it has that kind of fear that sometimes you say, here's Loise, you don't know what the people want, then the people can kill Loise and then you have to live with whatever guilt of that. But I love that about the Australian culture, the way that people give time and come to help you out. What is it that you guys love about your particular spaces? I think for me, it's mostly just like how open they are to making a foreign friend, even though at times it's just for them to have like a language exchange. They want to learn more English, but they're very friendly that they're always open to having like foreign friends or like uh, meeting up with international people. They're very open. They're very open to us, like inviting you for drinks or like uh, showing you around like at this new city, uh, there's like a very famous uh, breakfast dish. So almost every other uh, local that I meet, they always offer to invite me to go and try the the local breakfast here. So they're very welcoming. I mean, you always experience racism, but when you do experience like uh, people that are welcoming, it's always so refreshing. So I think what I like the most is how open and uh, accepting uh, Chinese people are into inviting you and wanting to be your friends, wanting to bring you into their homes. It's just amazing. Like you would never just randomly do that in South Africa because you think, you know, someone's going to rob you or something. But here they do it quite often. And it's, it's so refreshing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. People here are definitely a lot more open-minded than they are back in Kenya. Um, people here, you know, it, it's a lot more, it's a safer environment. Um, there is a lot less... Uh, as much as there is racism, but there is a lot more less discrimination, sort of, if you compare the two environments, the African environment in here. So people are more open to be themselves and to do their things, you know, without fear, without judgment. Um, and I like that. Also, the, the other end of the spectrum where you might find, you know, a lot of racist people, there's also the whole other side of it where there's a lot of people who actually, um, you know, sort of, I guess, understand the hardships and they sort of want to relate to you and want to actually listen to you. And that's, that's sort of a, a bit of a reprieve, I guess. Um, yeah. What, what else do I like about here? Just, just, you know, the culture, just, it's a massive country. There's a lot of beautiful um, places to go. Uh, a lot of good experiences um, that I've had so far. And I wish to, you know, get a lot more once, we're out of this um, suggested lockdown, as Tony said. 
And the safety. Yeah. And the safety. <laughs> safety. Yeah. Safety. Very safe. I can go to sleep uh, with my car unlocked and I'll still find my car in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So. With me, um, when I was in New York City, like everybody, okay, so if you are going into in trains and buses and all that stuff, um, people tend to mind their business because when I came here, I was used to, okay, you can say hi to everybody. Kandonani, how are you? You know, everybody greeted you. But then when you come here, it, it's, it was different. Like I would say hi and nobody would respond. And I'm like, okay. Even some of my friends that came from South Africa for my wedding, we went on a train and they were all friendly and saying hi to everybody. And people, they would notice that people weren't as friendly as they thought, you know, they would be. So it's, I think it's a culture shock in terms of if you come from a country that, okay, you can at least say hi, you know, you're in a taxi, you're in a bus, you were in front of the line, um, at a shopping complex, shopping store, you can say hi to somebody and you can strike a conversation with them. But here, it's only the older generation that you could do that to. The younger generation isn't too friendly. So I would say that sometimes you would, like you would strike conversations with older people because they come from a generation where they used to greet, they used to, they had, you could, they could communicate with you know they they don't come in a, they don't they're not from an era where it's all about your cell phone they're always locked on their phones so they like having conversations so you'd sit next to an old lady um i wouldn't say old probably like in the 50s 60s 70s 80s because some are still strong some are able to walk and they have a sound mind so you actually they actually have more conversations and they tell you about life than the younger generation because the younger generation they don't really like care that much mm. um so that's what i experienced it's more of the older generation that i talked to that i could say hi to and they respond um but the younger generation and also foreigners in terms of because of i think they know they like they from also from a place where they used to say hi and greet so i would speak with um those people but americans aren't as friendly as i thought they would be right right that's about it i would wish for us to actually wrap it right here there's a lot of things we can talk until kingdom come trust me but um for you listeners of the visions and tones i guess you had my guests actually what we're saying with this conversation is that experiences are different and um i think my guests have done very well you know giving a bit of pointers we we may have not said point one point two but if you listen to the conversation you'd hear that we started from you know ways in which you actually start the place you know before you go visit there we've spoken a little bit about visa costs and uh more financial ex- expenses and whatnot i think those are things that really you will need as you're 
toolkit to actually search, you know, um, whether you would make it if you were to relocate and move overseas to live there and whatnot. But genetists actually have spoken quite greatly also the importance of being around people who are actually looking like you. This is not it's just, this is not sort of something used as a way of segregating, but it's a way where if you're among people who really look like you, share similar values and whatnot, you sort of find a very safe space for yourself. Um, but I mean, yeah, so you hear a whole lot of stories, but do not just take whatever you see on the television. It's much more uh, deeper than that. I hope you actually enjoyed this episode and looking forward to seeing you again in the next episode. Thanks for choosing the Visions and Towns podcast and have a good one. Cheers.